This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode 14, Socially Distant Market Strategy, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creter, Ben Reitzes, Dan Belton, John Hill, and Ben Jeffrey from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our thoughts on the potential market implications of the economic shutdowns in the backdrop of massive monetary and fiscal interventions. We also discuss the key data points and virus trends that we'll be focusing on in coming months to determine when the light at the end of the tunnel should begin to brighten. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Market functioning is beginning to improve over the past few trading sessions as the Fed pumps liquidity into the system and the U.S. government provides a bridge to many individuals and corporations. Short bill yields are off the lows, which were negative. That said, market liquidity is still constrained and elevated uncertainty and volatility remain a key component of the market. So given the unprecedented market volatility, the incredible amount of both monetary and fiscal stimulus over the past couple of weeks that is in place to help support both market functioning as well as the economy through this point, Ian, where do you think we go from here in terms of rates and curve? Well, I think that the shape of the yield curve continues to be a bit confusing, for lack of a better word, simply because we would have otherwise anticipated a cyclical re-steepening to have taken hold in a more meaningful fashion. Now, we know part of the reason that we haven't seen that re-steepening has to do with the fact that the Fed is actually in doing limitless QE. So that puts a natural backstop as to how far rates are going to back up in the longer end. There will come a point, however, when we move past gauging the depth of the recession and the market starts to think more seriously about the reflationary impulse from this massive amount of stimulus, both on the fiscal side as well as from the Fed and global central banks. As for the outright level of yields, we're still in a process of price discovery. There was a period of about two weeks in which liquidity issues led a dash for cash, which put upward pressure on longer end rates, but that has subsided. And right now we're in a range of roughly 60 to 85 basis points in 10-year yields. We continue to anticipate negative rates to become commonplace in the front end of the curve. And as we watch the dynamic play out versus risk assets, we find the treasury market to a large extent is in a reactionary mode at this stage. So Ian, you mentioned negative rates in the front end. Is that really ideal given where the Fed target range is currently? And do you think that they'll do something to intervene in order to get the front end closer to their target? Yes, short bills and repo at this point being negative almost follows intuitively given what we have seen in terms of the interest in being as liquid as possible. If you're a company or a 
if you're a corporation and your goal is to have enough cash on hand to fund payrolls while the world is effectively shut down, bills make a more attractive alternative than anything further out the curve. One of the things that we've heard a bit about is this notion that the equity market should be shut down. Now, while we're safely through that point at this stage, one of the big benefits from keeping the equity market open was that that demand for liquidity was often met by selling stocks. So that contributes to part of the massive downtrade that we saw where the S&P 500 gave up roughly 35%. Now we've bottomed since then, and it will be interesting to see how some of these liquidity issues continue to play out in the front end of the curve. I would also say that some of the negative yields that we're seeing in short bills, in repo, are kind of a temporary phenomenon. This isn't to say that we won't see negative rates and other tenors at other points, but a lot of what's driving the current negative prints are the huge flood of cash into government money market funds. And in a couple ways, this is going to be self-equilibrating. What I mean by that is in order to fund the fiscal impulse, we're expecting a huge amount of bill issuance to come in the next couple weeks, couple months. That supply will help absorb some of that cash that's going into the front end. And then you might expect to see very low, but potentially at least positive bills and repo rates. The other thing that I would point out is that flight to quality should eventually ebb. As the equity market starts to balance, as risk sentiment starts to stabilize, all else equal, we would expect to see a slowing of the flow into government money funds, less cash trying to place in any single spot. And then also we would expect to see some downward compression on things like LIBOR IS or some risk spreads. So John, you mentioned LIBOR OIS. We've seen extraordinarily elevated levels. Some of this has come down a little bit over the past couple of sessions. I'll go to Dan and Danny. What do you think of LIBOR OIS and how this plays out over the next couple of weeks? I think the important thing for LIBOR is that it appears to at least now be reflective of where bank funding is actually getting done after the previous two weeks where LIBOR is printing 100 plus basis points through where funding was actually being achieved. The improved risk sentiment of the past two weeks has brought actual funding conditions down now, at least within the context of LIBOR. So determining the forward path of LIBOR now really depends on how funding conditions will evolve in the near term. And the Fed's done a lot in the past few weeks to try to improve liquidity, specifically for unsecured deposits or commercial paper. The commercial paper funding facility and the money market lending facility both should help guarantee that liquidity is in the system. The thing with LIBOR is it's not necessarily a liquidity problem anymore. It's more a credit problem. And this can be seen back in 2008 when, in September, the government actually guaranteed all deposits in money market funds, and yet LIBOR OIS didn't hit its peak until six weeks later at the end of October and remained elevated well into 2009. And that's despite a guarantee, and the rationale makes sense. I mean, even though you have assets guaranteed in prime funds, the money manager isn't incentivized to own credit. I mean, if he takes on a lot of credit and then suffers severe losses, the fund could go belly up. Sure, the investors are protected, but he's probably out of a job. So even these enhanced liquidity facilities can't really address credit concerns. You need credit to actually fall. As a result, 
It's not hard to see LIBOR staying elevated here. Maybe it won't increase any further, but staying at these elevated levels seems to make sense. And then when you take into consideration that LIBOR seems to be a bit of a lagging indicator now, since the implementation of the waterfall methodology, LIBOR is just naturally more sticky, but when it moves, it moves quickly and then tends to stick where it is. So we finally had the move higher over the past few weeks, and now the expectation could be that it won't quickly move lower as funding conditions improve. And this brings me to my last point. A risk on tone has been prevalent in the past two weeks, but still there's a lot of headwinds out there that could easily send risk sentiment back the other way in very short order here. So even if LIBOR doesn't increase significantly further, I also don't think we're going to see significant declines in LIBOR. Take, for example, the April euro dollars contract that's calling for 25 plus basis points narrowing in just the next two weeks. I think that that type of projection will prove to be optimistic. So, Danny, we saw quite a bit of volatility in IG spreads, and they've come off the wides quite sharply. Do you expect a retracement to some of the wide levels that we saw last week? Yeah, so like you said, IG spreads really gapped wider over the course of March, and a lot of this was due to illiquidity in the market. Of course, credit concerns are there, so credit spreads touched about 400 basis points for a widening of, of, of three percentage points or so. They've recouped about 85 basis points of those losses instead of 315 basis points. As risk sentiment continues to remain positive, I think spreads are going to continue to to move narrower in the near term. But there's likely to be a sort of second leg wider in spreads. And I think that's going to come as this economic weakness starts to really feed through to corporate balance sheets and ratings downgrades. We've already seen a significant number of ratings downgrades in March, but as we know, downgrades are are not a leading indicator. They're more lagging and coincident. And so most of the downgrades that we've seen already have been due to the shock to oil prices and concentrated in the energy sector. So I think going forward, there will likely be a second leg wider in spreads as corporations start to really feel this slowing economy. And that's when we're going to start to see spreads retrace back to these levels that we saw potentially even wider. And a lot of that is going to have to do with how effective the government stimulus bill is at at keeping these companies afloat and keeping them healthy. So Danny, you mentioned oil. Greg, I'd like to pass it to you on the FX oil front. We've seen the equity market retrace roughly 40% of its losses the U.S. dollar retrace about 50% of its gains. Oil has basically retraced 0% of its decline that has occurred over the last four or five weeks. And the geopolitics behind what needs to be done to curtail output and, and stabilize prices, it's just very tricky at this juncture. We do have the U.S., the Trump administration itself, and then also the Texas Railroad Commission, working to restrict U.S. output as sort of an olive branch to Russia and and Saudi Arabia. Thus far, nobody's taking the olive branch. I do think that the pain is so excruciating on Russia and Saudi Arabia that eventually they will cave into curtailments of supply. But I would say that that's probably not going to happen over the next week. It may happen in mid-April when Saudi Arabia needs to set its prices for delivery in May. 
One of the things that we've been thinking about in the rate space is as it becomes very obvious that oil is going to be low, at least for the foreseeable future, any sharp rebound seems a bit unlikely. And that obviously has inflationary or rather deflationary implications for the U.S. economy. The flip side is, given the shutdown, no one's really taking advantage of the very low gasoline prices that we're seeing domestically. With gasoline now below $2 a gallon on average, this would typically be a net add for consumption. But again, as people are largely homebound and the bulk of consumption is being limited to necessities, there seems to be a bit of a delay, if not an outright offset of this formerly stimulative development. Yeah, Ian, and you bring up a great point about the inflationary impact of oil and specifically what we've seen around the incredible volatility of the past several weeks. In the tips market in particular, the rise in real rates and plummet in break-evens has to be concerning for policymakers, not only from an inflationary expectation perspective, but also market liquidity. This isn't something that will persist indefinitely, but it will be a space to watch as the moves in the oil market show up in inflationary expectations, whether that be in the tips market, which should be taken with at least a small grain of salt, or in more survey-based measures will be very relevant as this crisis hopefully begins to fade into the background. Great. Good point on the oil front. And with respect to inflation, I mean, clearly globally, there's going to be a steep decline in inflation due to the collapse in oil prices and just broad pullback in demand. That likely will, I mean, last at least through a quarter or two. And that's going to have an impact as well on Canada as oil in particular, has an outsized impact on the Canadian economy. What we've seen in Canada, in addition to the hit from COVID directly, the collapse in global commodity prices and oil in particular has seen Western Canadian select prices fall into the low single digits, as low as $3 or so in recent days. And clearly, that's going to have a significant negative impact on the oil industry in Canada and the Canadian economy generally. Again, that's above and beyond the shock from COVID-19 and the broad shutdowns throughout the Canadian economy. And we've seen policymakers react react to that swiftly, maybe not as swiftly as elsewhere in the world, but the federal government has announced a number of stimulus plans, efforts to bridge individuals from an income perspective and, and bridge businesses to get through this, to try and limit the bankruptcies and hardships among the population. From the Bank of Canada and from a rates perspective, we've seen the bank a little belatedly cut rates down to the lower bound of 25 basis points. They've also started QE for the first time, which distinguishes this event from the uh, financial crisis in 0809, as, as the bank didn't participate in QE at that time. They'll be buying $5 billion in bonds in, in Canada's per week minimum. I guess the question now is, is what comes next for the Bank of Canada? And we've seen a lot of stress in Canadian financial markets. One area in particular is, is in the provincial market. We've seen provincial borrowing spreads widen significantly over the past few weeks. There are some, some fundamentals to that, but market stress also plays a role there. We'll see how the next few weeks play out. If that stress persists, if spreads widen out further, that might be the next step for the Bank of Canada to step into that provincial market to provide a little bit more support for the Canadian economy and for, for Canadian borrowers in general. So on the topic of expanding into the provincial market in Canada, the Bank of Canada's efforts will certainly be consistent with what we have seen already in the U.S. from the Fed. One of the things that has been topical is whether or not the Fed ultimately begins buying municipal debt on an outright basis. Now, that market is relatively fragmented and it has a lot of idiosyncratic risks and credit specifics, but as a theme, 
I don't think it would be surprising to see the Fed eventually step up and become a backstop to funding on the state and local level. Ian, you raise a good point. I think during you know the last crisis, we had the whole Build America bond program. And with an infrastructure plan possible here, we could see a reemergence of that type of issuance again, which is very supportive to the municipal market. Ian, you, you talked about how the municipal market is very diverse and bifurcated, so it's difficult to put a purchase plan around it. But we've seen the Federal Reserve already sort of quantify municipals in their treatment of municipal debt as HQLA. In the first phase of LCR, municipal debt wasn't included. They then went back and revised what was eligible to include just general obligation debt of states. So the Fed's already looked at the municipal market through that lens, and it's not hard to see them applying the same rules to a QE purchase of municipal debt. Yeah, and I would think that the basic assumption is how far out the curve are they going to go. As I understand it, the short-dated stuff, six months and in, currently falls within their mandate. The question really is, are they going to buy five-year general obligation bonds or not? All this conversation about the Fed buying multiple new types of assets, the Bank of Canada stepping in for the first time, we're seeing QE globally. As Again, the fiscal authorities are coming in to try and bridge the gap that's going to be at least a few months here of extremely depressed economic activity. And it's going to cost, in the U.S.'s case, trillions, multiple trillions of dollars. In Canada, we're looking at hundreds of billions of dollars. And the central banks are stepping in to effectively fund that. I mean, this is effectively MMT. And this is a conversation that probably is going to be had for a time to come here. Any thoughts on that here, guys? Well, I think it goes without saying that in an environment such as this, the notion that the central bank would be monetizing the deficit for stability of the system seems to resonate. It's what we're seeing. And frankly, this is not one of the situations that I would expect there to be any appetite to push fiscal constraint, whether that's on the side of the politicians or even within the Fed itself. The fact of the matter is there were moments in which the average U.S. consumer might have gone to the ATM and it simply not work. At this point, those risks are well behind us. And at this point, while we might, once we emerge on the other side, go through another round of recrimination comparable to the last financial crisis, I think at the end of the day, it's very difficult to fault any major central bank for effectively printing money to bridge the gap between now and the point where the global economy reopens. I think probably with everything we're talking about regarding the monetary and the fiscal response, it's probably important to look a little bit at the situation in Europe. There are a number of challenges that Europe has to overcome as a result of COVID-19. But the UK also stands out because it has had a big monetary and fiscal policy response to all of this. But it is also going through the Brexit process. As we know, the UK legally exited the EU on January 31st, 2020. But it's in a transition period, which is currently scheduled to end at the end of this year. So, Stephen, ultimately, what will COVID-19 have on the UK's Brexit strategy? Well, Margaret, Brexit was already a transformative opportunity for the UK. But COVID-19, I think, could push that process into light speed, so to speak. Importantly, the UK government, I think, is going to find that the tools it needs to manage COVID-19 are essentially some of the same ones required to manage Brexit. And that essentially means more flexibility for the government on trade, migration, industrial, regulatory, and fiscal policies. 
My view is that the UK will ultimately have to weave its response to COVID-19 into its strategy for Brexit. So I think there's, there's a growing risk that the UK government will eventually opt for a Brexit strategy that abandons its negotiations for a free trade agreement with the EU and moves to trading on WTO terms with the rest of the world. COVID-19 is going to drastically change the economic priorities of the UK, and it's also going to reduce the appetite to expend energy on a lengthy set of negotiations with the EU. And I think importantly, we can also look at these arguments from the other side of the coin as well. The European Union is going to have to deal with all sorts of existential questions over the coming year, maybe even the coming months. And I'm not sure that Brussels will want to get bogged down in lengthy negotiations concerning things like Northern Ireland, a free trade agreement with the UK, or its future relationship with the UK. Stephen, those are very interesting points. It leads me to the question of you know, what does this mean for the Brexit transition period, which, as you mentioned, is due to end on December 31st, 2020. Sure. Um, well, there may be an agreement between the UK and the EU to extend the end of the Brexit transition phase beyond December 31st, 2020, simply because the negotiations have been put in halt by COVID-19. My understanding is that some officials in Brussels are hoping to agree an extension with the UK of one or two years by the end of June. But my feeling is that the UK will not wish to drag things out that far. The longer that the UK is in the transition, the more the government is potentially handcuffed by various EU jurisdictions and regulations. So I would argue that the UK will be more willing to accept a shorter extension, something like three or six months. Another thing for the government to consider is the Scottish parliamentary elections in May of next year, in which the pro-EU Scottish National Party is currently expected to perform well in. The UK government may therefore want to set a new deadline for the transition period just after those elections are scheduled to take place. But the bottom line I want to make is that I don't expect this phase of Brexit to yield an endless series of, of one extension after another as far as the transition period is concerned. So, Stephen, here's an interesting thought exercise. Could you envision a world in which Brexit is extended long enough that it simply becomes completely irrelevant? There's two sides of that. One is the U.S. financial markets have already long since moved on from actually trading it. But even in practical terms, given what's going on with the union, there is a non-zero, although probably not high, chance that the U.K. isn't the only nation interested in exiting. You raise an interesting point, Ian. I certainly think because of all of the potential challenges or the real challenges, I should say, that COVID-19 presents the European Union and the UK, there is certainly a risk that in order to deal with crises as they unfold, yes, Brexit negotiations just simply don't happen. And the markets and policymakers all over Europe basically just throw their hands up and assume that the transition is never going to end. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't rule that out from happening. But as I said before, what COVID-19 is going to do, not only for the UK, for a lot of countries in, in Europe, some of which are in the EU still, it's going to mean that governments are going to be scrambling for all sorts of levers. And what this will do, potentially, especially for the countries still in the bloc, is it's going to push them up against restrictions and things that they simply can't move at their whim or access or adjust. 
the very simple element of this, of the very broad one, is, of course, the monetary and fiscal policy levers, which, of course, are very constrained for a number of countries in the EU 27 and more specifically the Eurozone. So I think even if I'm wrong and the negotiations get delayed for one or two years, if my base assumption is wrong and there's not a much shorter extension to the transition, I think ultimately the UK government will find itself in a position where it has to break away from the transition anyway, because it's going to need to do a lot of things on industrial, fiscal, monetary, migration, all sorts of regulatory policies that while in the transition, it may not be able to do because it's still subjected to some EU jurisdiction and regulation. So wasn't Brexit mostly about having countries control their own borders? And the European Union insisted that borders must remain open. That all just seems completely irrelevant now, as all the countries in the Schengen zone pretty much have begun to reinforce their own borders. And I don't think that that will roll back all that quickly after the uh, worst of the disease is over. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point, Greg. What I think that the COVID-19 crisis has exposed is some of the fundamental fallacies or flaws, if you want to call it that, in the EU project in the sense that it's a union in name and also to a very large degree in terms of its regulatory purpose. But when it comes to crisis management and managing the effects of a situation like a pandemic or maybe other things that we haven't experienced yet, a lot of the elements of so-called union break down. So this is an existential period of time, not only for the EU 27, but I think probably even more importantly, that certainly has financial implications, is the Eurozone. So Stephen, in this backdrop where we're talking about some fundamental fallacies exposed in the European Union, we're talking about Brexit taking a sidestep as the UK and the rest of the world focuses on fighting this virus now. What do you think this means for the pound? Well, ultimately, Margaret, I think that the pound will move lower against the dollar again with the global economic backdrop and the prospect of the UK moving to WTO rules acting as a break on pound strength. I would therefore be looking to sell rallies in cable, as it's called, throughout Q2. And I think that the pair at this stage is probably quite likely to trade below its five-year average for an extended period, the five-year average being 135. Given where the pair currently trades, assuming that a lot of the issues facing both Europe and the global economic backdrop on trade and a number of other things, assuming they don't dissipate very quickly in the second half of the year, I think an eventual retest of the 114 cycle lows in in cable can't be ruled out. Thank you, Stephen. I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about where we are now and what we think the market is pricing and what are the risks if we're wrong? Right now, we are in the process of having more than 30 states in the U.S. on a shutdown with social distancing guidelines and basically shelter at home in place for the next couple of weeks at least uh, through the end of April with regard to social distancing. I think the goal here is to try to contain the spread of the virus, figure out exactly how many people had it, might be over it, 
and allowed to get back to work in terms of the idea and the concept of risk-based shutdowns and the way this goes, a rolling risk-based shutdown as the economy starts to open up. Looks like the market has already priced April as being a throwaway sort of month, and whether or not that extends into May has yet to be seen. We really need to see the evolution of all of this. So that that seems to be with the market's pricing that, that we're going to get through this. There's light at the end of the tunnel, whether it be a month from now or two months from now. So the question really becomes, how are we wrong and what do we need to be watching now globally in order to get ahead of that? Well, I'm going to jump in. Just a quick thought. I think the primary way in which the market has got this wrong is if what we see in terms of the impact on the U.S. population differs dramatically than what is playing out in Europe and what estimates are for what happened in China. If it ends up being a more prolonged shutdown with a greater human toll, then I think that there is further downside in the U.S. economy. It takes away from any ambitions of seeing a V-shaped recovery. The flip side is if the U.S. did learn enough lessons from the rest of the world to get in front of the problem sooner than it might have otherwise, we could see a resolution that isn't as bad as a market currently has priced in. I expect that we'll have much better clarity on that over the course of the next three to four weeks. It won't take months, but it certainly won't come to fruition in days. Looking at some of the headlines with regard to when these factories are going to be ramping up production of respirators, we're still several weeks away from that. So to the degree that the social distancing and these states being shut down can slow the whole thing and allow the testing and the different supplies that are needed to become available is quite helpful. Ultimately, I think that we're going to remain in some semblance of volatile markets until we actually get a, a vaccine. Margaret, I agree with you. I think that the primary takeaway, at least at this point, is that volatility is going to be elevated going forward. And this risk on market tone we have now is going to be really highly dependent on the extent of social distancing or quarantine that the U.S. is going to go through in the future. So perhaps a key indicator to be watching over the course of the next few weeks is the the reinfection rate in China that's now reopened a lot of those provinces that were shut down. If we start to see the confirmed case in China start to grow again, it's going to imply that even a very long, severe session of quarantining isn't enough to mitigate the, the spread of the disease. If that's true, there's likely going to have to be periods of social distancing in the U.S. until a vaccine is established. And at this point, I don't think that's what's priced into market. So we could see another leg down in risk assets, potentially another flight to quality if more episodes of social distancing later in 2020 into 2021 comes into the conversation. Thank you, Dan. Certainly, we have quite a bit of a road ahead of us. And fortunately, we have monetary and fiscal policy stepping in quite strong in order to provide a bridge during this period. This concludes our Macro Horizon Strategy Team Roundtable podcast. Thank you to all of our strategists, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.karens at bmo.com. 
You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.